How are we doing? We good to go? That's fantastic. Well, good morning, everybody. Not long after becoming queen, um, at about age 25, in the year of our Lord, 1558, Queen Elizabeth is reported to have said, or perhaps to have written, I would not open windows into men's souls. Uh, Nobody knows exactly what she meant by that, but... um, I think I know a little of perhaps what she meant, and I think she was very wise. Uh, What I think she meant, and she was very wise, was that she was not going to press people on issues of conscience, uh, pushing people to change something that is already very dear to them, or is already very dear to their conscience, often makes them more resistant to change, not, not less. And what I think she meant, and I think she was very wise, was that as long as her subjects were obedient to her as queen... She was not going to push her Catholic subjects into becoming Protestants, at least not in the way that her father, brother, and sister had enforced their religious views, which was by way of threat of execution. And what she may have meant, and I think she was very wise, was that she was not going to ask questions of people unless she really knew what she was going to do with the answers. And what I think she meant, and I think she was very wise, was that ultimately it's God's place to judge the heart, and we usually sin when we undertake that task for ourselves. And what she was doing, for perhaps the first time, clearly in English history, was opening the door, just a smidgen, just a crack, but perhaps just opening the door to the possibility of of something that would later become known as a separation of church and state, in the sense of allowing room for a populace to diverge from their ruler to some degree, in matters of conscience. Queen Elizabeth's task was nearly impossible. She had to keep England together when it was deeply divided by a question that was fracturing Europe. And that question was this, are we Protestant or are we Catholic? And as we discovered last week, the answer to that question with respect to the Church of England was definitely, actually, we're definitely Protestant but in a very Catholic-y way. Just in case you're wondering why I'm saying this, uh, I think we've skipped one. Thank you. In fact, we've skipped a few. No, it's not that one. There, that's it. There. (coughs) Thank you. Um, Sorry, our technology seems to be against us today, but yeah. Um, Just in case you're wondering why we're talking about this, today I'm presenting the third of a four-part series of talks on the English Reformation. We are looking at what it means to be Anglican by finding out how it is that Anglicans exist in the first place. And today we're thinking about Anglican distinctives, if you'll forgive me for using an adjective as a noun, Uh, the things that make Anglican churches either unique or at least unusual. Returning to Elizabeth, uh, last week we saw how she was very much like her father in that she passionately believed that as the ruling monarch, she should be the absolute ruler, the supreme head of the Church of England, just as she was as queen, supreme head of everything else. But unlike her father, but like her brother, Edward VI, she was a convinced Protestant. 
And last week we examined a little bit about what that means. But unlike her brother and unlike her sister, Mary I, or Bloody Mary as she's been remembered, Elizabeth was not interested in extremism. She wasn't interested in making martyrs. She knew that there were good English folk in England who'd die for their Catholic cause in all good conscience before God, just as there were good English folk in England who'd die for their Protestant cause in all good conscience before God. And with that thought in mind, Queen Elizabeth was able to pass through a parliament her will, which was for a Protestant church, theologically, but one that would not offend Catholics, conservative Catholics, unnecessarily. She did this in two stages and was able to do this because Protestant bishops and lords just outnumbered Catholic bishops and lords in in the Houses of Parliament, but only by the slenderest of margins. In 1558, the first year of her reign, she, um, uh, 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 Parliament passed Elizabeth's Act of Supremacy, once again cutting ties with the Roman Catholic Church headed up by the Pope in Rome and establishing the British monarch as the head of the independent Church of England. Only, uh, unlike her father, the bishops were not happy to call her the head of the church because she was a female, and so she had to settle for the title Supreme Governor of the Church. Then in 1559, Parliament passed Elizabeth's Act of Uniformity, which set out what the Church of England would be like. Uh, It set out uh, the Church of England fundamentally as a Protestant church, theologically. In other words, the, the work of the church was to preach the gospel and to teach the Holy Scriptures and also to lead in prayers, all in the vernacular. In other words, all in the common language of the common people in English rather than in Latin. Services were to be conducted according to Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. Um, the, the, The Lord's Supper or Holy Communion was to be celebrated according to a reformed understanding rather than to the Uh, according to the understanding of medieval uh, Roman Catholic uh, belief. Uh, Transubstantiation, uh, the Roman Catholic idea that the bread and wine literally became the body and blood of Jesus during the saying of the Mass, that was officially opposed, although the prayer book did allow for a wide variation of understandings with respect to the Lord's Supper. Churches were also stripped of images, pictures of saints, and clergy were allowed to marry. Nevertheless, um, the Church of England would continue in many ways to actually look like a Roman Catholic church. The clergy would robe in clerical vestments, um, as I did this morning at the 8.30 service. And the church would continue to be structured in a very Catholic way, deacons and priests and bishops, rather than in the way of the Reformed churches, which were typically governed by a council of elders or presbyters. And the doctrinal position of the Church of England was worked on and worked on and worked on, and then articulated in 1571 by way of a document called the 39 Articles. So then, when people talk about the Anglican distinctives, usually what they mean is a set of characteristics that may not individually be unique per se, but that together create a unique church. And those distinctives are the 39 articles, the prayer book, and Episcopal leadership. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. 
Firstly, the 39 articles, or the articles of religion, they can be um, found at the back of any Anglican prayer book, and we have these green books uh, at the back of the church. We don't pull them out for the 1015 service, but we do for the other two services. Uh, If you grab a green prayer book at some point, you can find them on page 476, and they make interesting reading, and I encourage you uh, indeed to read them at your leisure. Um, The 39 articles as a statement of belief for the worldwide Anglican communion, they they establish us firmly as Protestant or Reformed in our theology, in our thinking about God. For example, article number 6 reads, of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In other words, and to recall the thinking of last week's sermon, the apostolic message and the apostolic authority are found in the Bible. Um, Apostolic authority is not to be found in the bishops. Churches don't get to make it up as they go along. The church... Uh, um, uh, we are not in that sense Catholics insofar as Catholicism sees apostolic authorities handed down through our ordination down through the bishops of the church. No, no, actually no. The apostolic authority is found in the New Testament. Uh, Or to put that another way, the Bible is the final authority on all matters of Christian faith and doctrine, not the church, not the bishops, not the pope. Um, the articles as a Reformation document, actually, they, they reflect their, their, their Reformation uh, context. Uh, so then Article 22 reads, Of purgatory. The Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshipping and adoration, as well as of images, as of relics, and also invocation of saints, is a fond thing, vainly invented, and grounded upon no warranty of Scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. In other words, the church does not get to make it up as it goes along. Um, The the Bible is our final authority. The articles therefore establish us as a Protestant church, but they also, in a more fundamental sense, establish us as a Catholic church. Now, up until now, I've used that word Catholic Um, uh, uh, in a way that reflects authority and where's authority to be found. So my statement might confuse you. Um, Please allow me to explain. In actual fact, the word Catholic has multiple meanings. Uh, In a church or theological context, the word Catholic refers to the notion already described that the highest authority on matters of faith and doctrine is the church herself in general and the bishops specifically who form our Christian traditions informed by Scripture but not bound by Scripture. That's Catholicism. And in that sense, to be Catholic is the opposite or different to being Protestant. But in a more fundamental sense, the word Catholic simply means all-embracing or universal. And the Anglican Church is part of and recognizes the universal Christian Church. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
And I've just quoted the Nicene Creed, and that's important because the Anglican Church is a Catholic or creedal church. Article 8 reads, of the three creeds, the three creeds, Nicene Creed, Athanasius Creed, and that which is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, ought thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by the most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. This is actually incredibly important because it means that the Anglican Church just doesn't come straight out of the blue. We go back to the early church, to the church councils, indeed to the apostles and the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts in the New Testament. And when we interpret Scripture, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, because the creeds keep us in fellowship with the whole universal Catholic Church in terms of her doctrines, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, etc., etc. That we are a creedal church that protects us against all of the harmful heresies that beset churches that read the Bible, yes, to be sure, yet ignore the way in which the Bible has been interpreted by previous generations of Christians. The second uh, Anglican distinctive I'd like to talk about is indeed the prayer book. And of course, there have been many prayer books, many additions and changes over the centuries. But the point to know here is that Anglican worship is shaped by a prayer book, the prayer book. And the genius of the Anglican prayer books, where they get it right, is that they do well at what they're trying to do, which is to frame our worship services as Christian worship services, where everything is biblical, where the gospel is preached by the liturgy as well as, hopefully, by the preacher himself, where Jesus is the focus. Um, my uh, first encounter with one of these little green books uh, was, uh, it wasn't actually this form, but it was the previous form, um, uh, an, an Australian prayer book or whatever it was called. But I first encountered the Anglican prayer book as a student at Christchurch Grammar School in the early 80s when I was a teenager. And uh, we had chapel at school every Friday morning. Um, and I came from a completely unchurched upbringing, so most things about chapel were alien to me. But every Friday we worshipped by way of the Anglican prayer book. And I do remember I felt a degree of disdain uh, for the prayer book. I assumed, somewhat irrationally, that these things were written down in a book because nobody actually believed them. It was some kind of form of institutionalized authoritarian mind control. I just assumed that's what was going on. But... But the prayer book did actually sow seeds. I remember reading from time and time and time again on Friday mornings from the prayer book, our Lord Jesus Christ said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And it was deeply mysterious to me. I mean, how do you do that? I, I knew that God existed, that's because I was a human being, and all human beings know that God exists. But, but how do you love him? I had no idea how God could be loved. As, as a teenage boy, I knew what it was uh, to love teenage girls. Uh, in fact, I was regularly in love with large numbers of them. 
And, but then again, they, they, they looked so pretty and they smelt so nice and occasionally they would even talk to you. <laughs> but how do you love a God that you can't see or touch or feel or hear? How do you do that? It was a mystery to me, a problem to be solved. And so coming at this from the perspective that it was a technical problem, I often prayed, Lord... Show me how to love you. And it wasn't a pious prayer. Uh, it, was, it, it was simply a desire to know what these words, which I've encountered in the Anglican prayer book, was simply a desire to know what these words meant. But of course, you know, as you all recognize, boy, what an exceedingly dangerous thing to say to God. Lord, sh- show me how to love you. For he was happy to answer me, and his answer changed my life. It changed my life in greater measure than anything else ever could or ever would. Lord, show me how to love you. And, of course, he introduced me to his son slowly, gently, patiently, carefully, over the years, to Jesus. Um, Jesus, the one the apostles said about him, that, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which our hands have touched... This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. You know, you can't, you can't love God unless you've met Jesus. And Jesus shows us the Father. And the Father through the Spirit shows us the Son. Now, as an ordained Anglican clergyman, I, I love the prayer book. I love it for many reasons. I love the fact that it keeps us focusing on the right things when we as Anglicans come together to worship. Uh, Here at St. Barnabas, we have three different services each weekend, and they conform to three very different styles, with the 8.30 a.m. service being the most traditional and this service at 10.15 being our most contemporary. But all three services are shaped by the Anglican prayer book, even though at this service alone we don't touch this thing, it stays firmly on the shelf. Yet, nevertheless, at this service, what we do, when and how, is shaped, guided, It is conformed by the prayer book. It it governs our worship. Um, The Anglican prayer book, uh, you see, requires of us to do certain things. When we come to worship, we, we must pray. We must praise. We must read the Bible. We must intercede for others in prayer. And we must receive teaching on the Word of God. And whenever I visit attend other churches of other denominations. And, of, of course, I'm, I'm actually doing that regularly. Usually it's because I'm on annual leave, but I visit, I visit churches of friends and churches of family, interstate and here in Perth. And whenever, actually, to be perfectly honest, whenever I visit churches of other denominations, often I am struck at how shallow their worship is. In so many churches today, whether they be Pentecostal or Baptist, the worship service often consists of only two elements, singing and preaching. And that's it. There is no public reading of the Holy Scriptures, although, even though that in actual fact is commanded in the Bible. Because of that, the sermon is usually a motivational talk of a prophetic nature, which may be, actually, it might be very, very good indeed. That might be wonderful, but... 
When this is the routine, it is easy to forget that the foundational job of the church is to teach the Bible, the whole counsel of God. In these services, there's no time for intercessory prayer, forgetting that the Bible commands that when we come together, that first of all, not necessarily chronologically, but first of all, of the first importance, we offer up prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, beginning with kings, rulers, officials, and those in authority, so that we may all live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is only one God, and there's only one mediator between God and humankind. And, and that one mediator is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all people. Obviously, then, when we come together, we're going to pray all kinds of prayers of intercession and thanksgiving. We're going to pray for the nations. We're going to thank God for our political leaders, and we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for those in authority, for peace. We're going to pray for the church. We're going to pray for those in need so that the reign of Christ might be made manifest in this world to everyone. The prayer book reminds me to do this. And where there is no prayer book, it seems to me that such things are very, very quickly forgotten. The prayer book also reminds uh, us that when we come together, we are actually worshippers. We are actually here to worship. Um, we, we don't come together as consumers here to consume some experience, which is a spectacular show. And the prayer book reminds me, as a leader of worship, that I'm not responsible for the provision of a spectacular show. I'm not responsible for the provision of a world-class stage lighting, a laser show, and a big perspex box in which to cage the drummer lest he escape. <laughs> to be sure, a prayer book can be used to turn the worship of the living God into the driest, most boring, least creative, stupefying experience imaginable. That's true, but that's our problem. It's not this book's. The prayer book is there to keep our worship biblical, to keep our worship real. And the last thing I'd like to talk today uh, about today is Episcopal uh, leadership of the church. This word Episcopal uh, means that as a church we're governed by bishops. Uh, in the New Testament, um, there are three words relating to how churches are led or governed. Um, and those three words are uh, Episcopos, Presbyteros and diaconos. This first word, episkopos, it literally means overseer. And that's the way that the word is translated today in modern English translations of the Bible. It's how the word's uh, translated in our Pew Bible. However, in the earliest English translations, it was translated by the word bishop. The second word, presbyteros, again, it just literally means elder. Um, and that's the way it's translated, elder. And the third word, diakonos, it literally means servant, and it's been translated as servant or minister, and occasionally it's left untranslated simply as the word deacon. The Anglican and Roman Catholic churches are Episcopalian in so far as they are churches governed by bishops. According to this view, 
there are three offices of leadership in the church in the New Testament. The episkopos, the bishops, the presbyteros, or priests, and the diakonos, or deacons. Priests and deacons work together to govern God's people in local congregations within a city, but each city is overseen by a bishop, or perhaps those multiple congregations are overseen by a small group of bishops within that city. In other denominations, there are two other commonly found models of church governance. In Presbyterian churches, each church is governed by a council of elders. Only the elders have votes, and the elders typically hire and fire the preacher and also administer church discipline. In Congregationalist churches, every signed-up member of the church has a vote. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Congregationalist churches, they all claim biblical warrant for their style of governance. Who's right? (laughs) Actually, none of them. Or all of them. Actually, there are multiple patterns of church governance across all of the different churches in the New Testament. Historically, what Christians have done is something that is very easy to do, which is to read back into Scripture the pattern of leadership that makes the most sense to us or the pattern of leadership that we want. The Episcopalian system of government is no more or less biblical than the other systems. It has its advantages and disadvantages. But I'm grateful, overall, I'm grateful for our system of being governed by bishops. And it has one peculiar and particular strength which I'm going to tell you about now. That strength is this. Although this church had a role in calling me to this ministry, this church doesn't employ me. Neither the elders here nor the congregation hired me. I'm employed by the Anglican Diocese of Perth, and my bosses, the ones to whom I'm accountable, are the bishops. This means that unlike so many other pastors in so many other congregations, I don't have to worry about you guys firing me. Or even I don't have to worry too much about you guys disliking me. I am your servant, but that does not make you my master. I am your servant, but you are not my master. And that's actually quite a healthy thing for both of us. It it means, by virtue of our ancient and hierarchical system, that I can speak and preach prophetically without having to worry too much about what might happen if I accidentally tread on the gatekeeper's toes. And I've heard over the years of of a significant number of churches of other denominations that have grown to be exceedingly toxic simply because they were led by a body of elders who acted like gatekeepers and who ate pastors for breakfast. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Pasta. Well, I began... That's a really bad joke. (laughs) I began this series of sermons by saying 
as you will be aware, you are sitting in a Christian church. This is both good and important. As some of you may be aware, you're also sitting in an Anglican church. This is not so good and not so important, but it's still somewhat good and somewhat important. Indeed, it is important to stop and think just very occasionally as to what it means that we are an Anglican church. Uh, Next week, we'll conclude this uh, series of sermons by looking at the challenges that we're faced with currently in the global Anglican communion. And we'll think about how our history might help us to find a way forward. The Lord be with you.